0: Markham, Richmond Hill, Vaughan, From everywhere you are. Aurora, Newmarket, East Willemberry. This is The Feed. Georgina, King, Whitchurch, Stovel. The Feed is York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to the people that live and work here.
1: Welcome to the feed. I'm Ann Romer. On the show, a personal fundraiser for Ukraine, dining out with CARES, Taste for Life, and No Dogs Left Behind. But we begin with the rise in COVID cases again. Another week of questions and confusion when it comes to COVID-19. It was reported that 12,000 Ontarians have had COVID twice. Close to 5 million of us contracted the virus since December 1st, 2021. Wastewater data indicates there's more COVID circulating now than at any other point in the pandemic. Antiviral pills will be more widely available. The province's top doc is recommending, but not requiring, the wearing of masks indoors. Public Health Ontario stating that the recent rise in hospitalizations is linked to the lifting of the masking mandate March 21st. So, what now? What next? Dr. Anthony Ladelfa is lead infectious diseases specialist at Oak Valley Health. Dr. Ladelfa, we need your help figuring all of this out. By the way, thanks for joining us on the feed.
2: Thanks so much for having me, Anne.
1: So, it began as a wavelet. That's how some health officials. Described it. Now, some are calling this a tidal wave of COVID 19. How do you frame what's going on right now in terms of case counts, hospitalizations, infections here in Ontario?
2: Yeah, I think we were trying to hope for the best, given that we had a very significant wave of BA1 subvariant in December and January. And what started off small escalated, and I think what we're seeing now is very high case numbers to the best of our knowledge. I remember we have quite limited access to PCR testing for the most part, so we're estimating high case numbers based on the wastewater signal, as you mentioned, uh, as well as of those who are actually getting PCR tested, what percentage of them are actually positive, and that number has also been increasing. So, we are seeing high case numbers. The hospitals and ICU numbers, they tend to lag at least two weeks behind the rise in cases. So we're starting to see that rise now and it will take again another couple of weeks to know the true magnitude of how it's impacting number of hospitalizations and ICU use as well.
1: The Public Health Ontario report is linking an increase in hospitalizations to the lifting of the masking mandate here in Ontario March 21st. So how important then is masking when it comes to containing Omicron and BA2?
2: It's very important. That's the long and short of it. It's At the end of the day, the vast majority of transmission is via the respiratory route, both through uh, droplets as well as aerosols that when masking is applied as much as possible, the amount of infectious material is significantly reduced in the air. And especially when we have such high case numbers, it's, it's clear that The more masking that there is, the less of these infectious particles, droplets, aerosols are in the air, and that will have overall reduced numbers of transmission. Will it be perfect? By no means will it do that. However, there should be a significant drop, especially in these public settings where we do fear that some people will uh, pick up COVID-19 now sort of unsuspecting. Uh, things like at grocery stores and other places, if people stop masking, they can sort of get caught in the, in the crossfire, so to speak, um, versus other settings where it's, there's a very discrete household transmission where that's sort of clear clearly going to be the case of transmission. But for these other indoor settings, I think masking would have a significant effect on at least controlling the amount of spread, because right now it's the doors are wide open for just uncontrolled spread that has is having a lot of direct and indirect uh, impacts on uh, the the healthcare system, as uh, what I can speak for, uh, as well as just the sheer numbers of people who are off ill.
1: From your perspective and in your opinion, is the government and the chief medical officer of health each, and they say they work together, but often they work independently? Should each of them, come together and reinstate the masking mandate at this point?
2: I do think that would be a very important step, just given how fast these case numbers are rising. Um, I think that would be one important step, if for nothing else, just to show that they do understand that this pandemic of a respiratory virus is uncontrolled right now. And while they tried to keep uh, people unmasked uh, because... That was the direction that people wanted to go in when the case numbers were lower. It's quite clear now that we need to put in at least some measure of control now to stop some of this very uncontrolled spread right now. And I think it would send a message that they do understand and they do care to try and stop the spread from happening. Obviously, their goal was to be in a position where even with high case numbers, uh, there's no there's no ill impact on the healthcare system and on the workplaces and the economy. But unfortunately we're seeing that when there are very high case numbers, there are very significant impacts, Um, you know, directly and indirectly on our healthcare system, you know, I was mentioning that the case numbers are rising, the hospitalizations are rising. We've had a huge number of staff that are unfortunately all testing positive now sort of at the same time. And it's sort of crippling an already uh, very tenuous workforce in the healthcare setting, unfortunately. Not to mention those who have ill children because they acquired it at daycare or school and parents or guardians need to now stay home with them, taking time off work. And there's a lot of missed productivity that way. I think getting some more public health measures in place and also really pushing the importance of being vaccinated and boosted to try and reduce the amount of transmission would be very important sort of public health messages to convey to the public so that they do see that there are efforts being put to try and stop this wave, which is, you know, much higher than any wave we've seen before.
1: Quick Q&A, rapid fire, if you'll go along with me on this one. So number one, 60 plus. Now, eligible for the booster, the second booster. The under five set, the kids under five, still not vaccinated. Why?
2: Yes, so that is uh, the trials are still ongoing. Unfortunately, in the cohort under five, they actually were to be safe actually used a much smaller dose of the vaccine. And while the safety was quite good, uh, it actually didn't elicit enough of an antibody response in the two to five age group. Um, so again, when they were trying to play it safe and actually it's likely the two to five actually needed a bit higher of a dose. So that's why the trials are ongoing to make sure that they can find a dose that works uh, effectively enough. And that's why there's been a delay in the under five cohort. Meanwhile, 60 plus, we know that the immunity could wane three to six months after the last vaccine or from their infection, especially those who are more elderly or have um, a number of medical conditions. And so that's why the second booster, again, is targeting those who we know the vaccine is safe and will work and those who are at risk of having a waning immune system and could be at higher risk of more severe infection should they get it now.
1: Are we testing enough here in Ontario?
2: No. No. Okay. Unfortunately, it's part of it is a resource issue, um, that which I understand, but I think a lot of what we're seeing is people that are presumptively positive. Um, we don't have a system to report our rapid antigen tests, and so we have a lot of people who either they have a rapid antigen test that's positive or people who have significant symptoms, they try testing themselves, but it's coming up negative, but their symptoms are very suspicious, If we had PCR confirmation, it would really help us with trends and seeing what direction we're truly going in instead of having to rely on our best guess of the case numbers using wastewater data, which seems like that should be more of a secondary uh, measure. But unfortunately, uh, many people just simply don't have access to PCR testing right now.
1: Easter and Passover gatherings well underway. What is your best
2: advice? So, Uh, It's definitely hard right now. It's a tricky time because case numbers are are so high. There is an estimate that as much as one in 20 people could be actively COVID positive when the case numbers are this high. Uh, Again, because the case numbers are so large right now, again, from a public health perspective, limiting the number of contacts will be key here. You know, if there's presumably going to be mostly indoor gatherings for a lot of these celebrations, um, You know, masking indoors is becoming a lot uh, harder, especially with these kind of family gatherings. But again, reducing contacts. um, In some cases, if gatherings can be delayed until case numbers are a bit lower, so the risk is lower, um, that's definitely important. Being aware that even just having very mild cold symptoms is likely COVID-19 just with our case numbers and things like that should not be brushed off. Just a mild runny nose could actually transmit to become a severe infection in someone who's elderly or immunocompromised. And so doing your part to exclude from any events if you're not feeling 100% uh, or if you think you may have been exposed from someone uh, more discreetly um, is really important to try and prevent these large-scale spreading events uh, at these gatherings. Final
1: question. If there had been more guidance from health officials here in Ontario, when the sixth wave first began, when it was a wavelet, would we be in a better place today?
2: I think the amount of spread may have been a little bit less. With these variants, these variants are are clearly very transmissible. Um, I'm not sure how much we would have mitigated the case numbers uh, in total, but... Um, I don't know if it would have spread as fast and as extensive as we saw now. It definitely would have kept a lid on it. It's a matter of how much um, and how it will impact uh, the hospitalizations. Um, so it, it is a tricky one. But again, the messaging really needs to focus on masking and just the sheer importance of being vaccinated and boosted to try and limit that transmission.
1: Dr. Anthony Ladelfa, Oak Valley Health, thank you so much for joining us on the feed. Whether it's the never-ending pandemic or the Oscars slap heard around the world, anger can take many forms. Kevin Frankish with professional advice.
3: There is no doubt that people and society are getting meaner. And we don't need any polls or surveys, although they are readily available and confirm that. But I think each of us has experienced a meaner kind of person in the last little while. We may have even felt ourselves becoming meaner. Well, to the rescue is Dr. Monica Vermani, and she has just written a book, A Deeper Wellness Conquering Stress, Mood, Anxiety, and Traumas. And she joins me right now. Hi, Dr. Romani. Hi. Am I right? Do you feel people have become meaner, or is that just anecdotal?
4: You know what's happened? There's a exacerbation of symptoms going on. And one of the symptoms is irritability, frustration, anxious, you know, feeling overwhelmed, feeling confused about the future, self-doubt, fear of uncertainty. So I think it's the times are dictating such a shift in our life that we feel out of control. And so when people are in pain or suffering, they spill over onto others. And I think what we're calling mean is more a demeanor of people's symptoms just spilling over onto others. And having less tolerance for themselves, but also less tolerance for others,
3: and when you talk about a lack of control, I mean, the, right there is is the part of the definition of stress and anxiety is is getting overwhelmed by something we have no control over, such as a pandemic.
4: And it's the perceived it's the perceived loss of control. The truth is life only gives you what you can handle, good or bad, you know, we do handle things. We just have a tendency to judge how we handle things as maybe not being adequate or good enough. And that's the problem. It's the self-doubt. Fear and anxiety is self-doubt. And it's you not believing in your skill set to handle whatever shows up at your door. Even though if you look at life and you reflect on your years before you, you've always handled whatever showed up. Even if you feel like you didn't handle it with much tact and dignity, you still handled it. And, you know, anger today is just a symptom, like a blanket word. But underneath it, we got to start exploring what are my insecurities that are bubbling up As anger. So, anger turned inwards can be depression, and anger outwards, we all know, is some version of aggression or projection or blaming others or, you know, being irritable and frustrated. It's important for us to look at where is anger stemming from. It's like a blanket word. So, it doesn't really give you context of what's going on. Each of us have to do our own inner work to say, what's bubbling up for me? Anger can stem from love, anger can stem from frustration, feeling lonely not feeling good enough, feeling bored, feeling inadequate, feeling taken advantage of, feeling confused, feeling like a fraud, feeling misunderstood, um, not capable, not competent. Anger can stem from feeling sad, lost, confused for the lack of direction in life. Anger can stem from a lot of feelings that are really about you. And so a deeper wellness is really about you working on yourself to be a higher, better version of yourself Once you understand what's bubbling on the inside of you on a symptom level, you can then prevent that ripple effect of spilling over onto others in behaviors that we can consider mean or frustrated or irritable.
3: It's interesting because it's almost the exact opposite of what I said earlier. And that is we're, we're finding people becoming meaner and angrier. And you're sort of saying, well, well, perhaps a lot of that is coming from within. So our, our perception mm-hmm. is, is everything mm-hmm. here.
4: So when you say people are becoming meaner, I would agree with people are definitely showing more symptoms out there. The pandemic was a sudden change in reality and it made a lot of us a lot more anxious about fear of uncertainty not knowing how to handle things do I wear the mask, do I not wear the mask I'm not going to work now, how do I change my lifestyle, how do I become healthier, you know how do I deal with symptoms that are coming up without lack of um, you know, access to education or resources out there many people felt lost and overwhelmed and they didn't know where to get guidance and so what I'm seeing It's not that people are getting meaner, but people are definitely having more signs of symptoms that they're not doing well, that there's a lot more mental health issues going on out there. And we need to have compassion for one another, including ourselves, that, you know, it is a time that comes with a lot of uncertainty and we don't really know how to navigate today's times, but we do know one thing. I got to stand by my own skill set and trust me that I can get through whatever shows up.
3: The title of the book, A Deeper Wellness Conquering Stress, Mood, Anxiety, and Traumas, you make a pretty bold statement with one particular word in that title, and that is conquering.
4: Yes. And I guess that's the key about life, right? We're all trying to be a higher, better version of ourselves. And conquering means taking, you know, charge of your own life. Many of us feel powerless to our lives and, you know, or to our past traumas or our symptoms. And the truth is, you know, The journey of life is trying to be a better version of yourself. And I always say the first step to treatment is awareness. Mm -hmm. Many of us get caught up in today's hustle bustle of society, and we don't make time for us to work on ourselves. And we get caught up in raising our children, going to work, going to school, fulfilling responsibilities we think we need to do, but we don't always make time to make sure we're healthy as we're doing those other roles in our life. And so this is a book about if you pick it up, to start reading and working on, you're conquering an aspect of your life that maybe you haven't paid enough attention to. And each and every one of us deserve to be a better version of ourselves so we have a life that we're more proud of, we're healthier in, and we're more fulfilled in. As we're doing better, we spill over onto others and help too. So it's not that we just spill over onto other people in unhealthy habits. When we're working on ourselves, we're also role modeling and being better friends, family members, and colleagues at work.
3: Now, I live with depression, and and I always tell people the opposite of depression is hope. And yes. a lot of people don't have that. But when you use a word like conquering, it gives hope. Okay, you, you mean I yes. can actually overcome this?
4: And it makes you realize you have choice. Conquering means I can choose and to control work differently with my symptoms. And hope is believing in your skill set. Mm-hmm. Like, hope is, oh my gosh, I can read something and work on myself and get out of a place of mood, anxiety, stress, and traumas. And traumas are different layers. They can be severe ones in your life that was a sudden change, or there can be like emotional debris, as I call it, emotional memory from, you know, childhood things that still affect you, that upset you, that keep you stuck. Many times I think we don't realize how many things we haven't processed or realized we've internalized. And it's important for us to revisit, why does this thing keep bubbling up to the surface? Why is it when I have dead air time, I end up having all these thoughts that come up about my mom or my dad or my childhood or how I don't feel good enough? It's important for us to pause and reflect on life. This book is about pausing and reflecting to work on yourself so that you can have a better quality of life, not just for yourself, for each and every person you interact with.
3: This book is also a workbook as well. Yes, it is. Tell me about that. So, the
4: first step to treatment is awareness, which means there is psychoeducation in the book to help you educate you on life lessons that you can implement. But then I have concrete reflective exercises for you to implement the material that you learn into your own lives and work through things. And so, the beautiful thing about this workbook is it's an individual journey, but I've had a lot of families work through the chapters, I've had a lot of couples read the chapter together, and do their own exercises and share it with one another. It's an interactive book that allows you to interact with yourself on a deeper level, but also your loved ones. Yeah, I like that.
3: I like that fact because quite often we feel that any journey towards dealing with depression is one you take alone. And it really should be the opposite of that uh, because people will provide you with better context, better perspective, better understanding and support as well
4: i actually like how you say that but yeah it's an 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 alone journey but we're amongst people so you know we need to rely on one another to learn to grow to get insights and so you it's important for us to start realizing that we're not alone in our journey and many people are struggling right now if we can be accountability buddies if we can have compassion for ourselves and others It's a better world, like we can spill over on tethers in anger and irritability, or we can also spill over on tethers in peace, harmony, and compassion right now. It's an inner job. The more you're working on yourself, you'll notice how your vibration is helping others.
3: A deeper wellness conquering stress, mood, anxiety, and trauma. The author is Dr. Monica Vermani, a clinical psychologist in Toronto. Thank you so much for this, uh, Dr. Vermani.
4: Thank you very much for having me.
1: After the break, the Taste for Life fundraiser.
3: Do you have a story
0: idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region.
1: Welcome back to the feed. I'm Ann Romer. Good works, good people. First, a Seneca College student's personal fundraiser for Ukraine, Craig Robertson, with that story.
5: Anna Kostenko is from Ukraine. She's a Seneca College student in Toronto. She's volunteering with Ukraine Medical Support, a nonprofit group to send medical aid to Ukraine. Meanwhile, her family is still in Ukraine. Anna joins us on the feed. Thanks a lot for joining us, Anna.
6: Thank you for having me today, and I'm more than pleased to raise awareness about what is happening in Ukraine.
5: Before we talk about your volunteer work, uh, who in your family is still in Ukraine?
6: All my family are in Ukraine eventually. So I will tell my background a bit. I was born and raised in Ukraine, and I was competing as a professional rhythmic gymnast. I moved to Canada when I was like 17 to get my bachelor degree after I competed here at the international tournament. And I fell in love with uh, this city, with Toronto. Uh, and I just came to my parents and I were like, Hey, I want to study. I want to get good degree somewhere outside of Ukraine. And we chose Canada because it's more safe than the United States. And it's also more cheap. Uh, because, like, internationals are paying way more a lot than uh, locals. So I ended up to go to Seneca College, and I left all my family in Ukraine. It was unusual and hard for me to start new life in foreign country without my family. But honestly, I got used to it and did all my best, knowing I will see them every school break.
5: It must be tremendously difficult when you had planned on seeing them, and now you can't. You can't visit.
6: Correct. All my family are in Ukraine, based in Kiev, and I visited them every four months since I started my education. And now I never forget the feeling when internal live news and so that Russia has started full scale invasion on twenty first of February, and. Honestly, this is so hard to accept that you don't know where you can meet your family on the same streets you were born and raised. And you don't know the consequences the war are leading to.
5: Do you know where your family are, Anna? Are they still in Kiev?
6: No, they, they are like more in the west of Ukraine, but uh, my stepfather and father are sometimes going to Kiev to work and help uh, vol- uh, volunteering as well to help those in need. Um, but my mother just um, had, had a birth like nine months ago, and she's breastfeeding. And sometimes uh, I realize that she's breastfeeding in the bomb shelter when he was under a really big bomb attack.
5: This must be very, very mentally difficult for you, how your life has changed so much.
6: Sure. I had a guilty feeling that I'm sleeping in soft bed under a peaceful sky, to be honest. And when I uh, realized that war started, I guess I was panicking even more than them because you don't know when the connection going to be lost with them. How are they feeling? What are they eating? Like the normal human basis um, things they can do right now in a proper way. The, The life has stopped and changed like never before.
5: Anna Kostenko is joining us. Anna is Ukrainian and she's doing some volunteer work with the Ukraine Medical Support Group. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But first I want to talk about one of your family members is a prisoner of war.
6: Yes, it happened on 22nd of March, when, so uh, my mom was trying to, to like kept it in secret from me because I'm so vulnerable and um, I'm going through all pain Ukrainians are feeling right now same way. And um, I'm so fragile to every bad news. So how I found out that uh, my relative became a prisoner of war. It happened on 22nd of March when my mom sent me a footage from news, from Russian news, from Russian propaganda news, where Russian soldiers captured Ukrainian military base and, and we found a relative on this footage, on video. And I didn't know how to react because it is impossible to see how hero that was defending Ukrainian land becoming prisoner of war and right now, we don't have any news, connection, or even signal with him. It's my niece's father, and I spent huge amount of time with him when I was young. I always valued spend, uh, spend time with him because he was so open-minded and hard-working person. Even though to track this situation, my relatives are pushed to watch Russian and Belarusian news, which are filled with propaganda and misleading information because we want to see him alive, you know? You you are pushed to to watch all this propaganda news to found the relative. And it is so hard to, uh, I can't imagine what my, family is going through right now because it is so hard when you know the truth, when you see how your friends are dying and how cities are destroyed. You can't believe that these news channels, Russian and Belarusian, have audacity to disinformate local people there. And local people, for example, has only TV in their houses, like older people. They would not still believe that what is happening in Ukraine. It's a big conflict. And they still not realize it. And the only update we have on him is that Russian government moved him to Belarus, which is also illegal. And I can only imagine what he's going through. And he really fights for his life. And honestly, I hope he's alive.
5: Well, we would love to support and help you out. Tell us about all this volunteer work you're doing with the Ukraine Medical Support Group.
6: We were all panicked and devastated after a f- few days of our Russian full-scale scale invasion to Ukraine. And honestly, I thought my hands are tight and I will be in this horrific mental state forever. I started to find ways how to help Ukraine and raise awareness through social medias about what problems Ukraine are facing now. I have lots of Canadian and non-Ukrainian friends who helped me to raise money and bought crucial care that already arrived to Ukraine. Um, But then I found a local organization, UMS, Ukrainian Medical Support, that ships humanitarian aid to Ukraine, and it became my relief. For the past months, me and my team have done an enormous amount of work. Moreover, I feel safe, support, and little accomplishments there because you are filled uh, with Ukrainian people, Ukrainian spirit, and you see the support we are trying to get is insane. And yesterday, 26 kits of medical support worth over $1 million has been loaded to airplane, and mayor of Mississauga, Bonnie Crombie, Crombie, joined us as well and supported us. Um, so, Ukraine medical support located at two 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 five Erin Mills Parkway at Sheridan Center. We do have a warehouse where people can leave humanitarian aid. We also have social medias. Uh, we are trying to raise awareness and um, show Canadians and local people how they can help not only with money and donation, but with actual humanitarian aid that they are able to bring, or they can volunteer for us and dedicate some time for um, Ukrainians that have these issues right now.
5: Anna, I want to give you the floor to have one final message for our listeners.
6: Families that were killed, women who were raped, and children who will never see their parents again for no reason, for no higher purpose, just simply brutally murdered. I I hope they, um, like, lots of people saw the massacre in Bucha, what happened near Kiev. It's, like, 20 kilometers from Kiev, the capital of Ukraine. I hear those stories from people... My family and friends know, and I assure you that it's not an exaggeration in the slightest way. I cannot begin to comprehend that people who are capable of this are walking the same earth as all of us.
5: Thank you very much, Anna, for sharing your story with us all. Anna Kostenko, our guest here on 105.9 The Region.
6: Thank you so much. Thank you so much.
5: For The Feed, I'm Craig Robertson.
1: Next, Dining Out with CARE Community
7: Connections, Tina Cortez takes the reservations. Mark Koning is Manager Communications Operations with CARE Community Connections York Region. Mark, welcome back to the feed.
8: Great, thank you for having me. I appreciate being here.
7: Before we talk about this year's Taste for Life fundraising event, talk to us about the work of CAYR.
8: So at CARE, um, we work with uh, all different types of vulnerable populations throughout York region. We work with people living with and affected by HIV. We work with people who use drugs and we work with people who identify with the 2 LGBT community. Um, we offer workshops, we offer services and support, and we try to make connections so people aren't left behind.
7: Was there a greater need to make those connections through the pandemic?
8: Uh, yes, we, we saw a bit of a, a need, um, uptake during the pandemic, you know, it was a little harder for people to get connected to um, things like medical appointments or people to get food services. Um, so we, we kind of helped out the best we could in offering either practical sports on our own or just uh, continuing to try and make connections because we did, you know, the people were still out there. It was just harder to get hold of folks.
7: Tell us a little bit about the workshops. What are they like?
8: Um, the workshops—they're usually educational, uh, you know, just to kind of go out into the community and inform people of what we do, and the services and support that we offered. Um, and that way, it's kind of easier to to establish connections, you know, with um, places like the Municipality of York Region, uh, you know, um, financial supports like Ontario Works and ODSP, um, you know, and and the that's That's one side of the the workshops. The other side is to um, you know, make sure everybody knows where we're around and we're available because of of course, York region is such a, a big and vast area that sometimes people are um, kept left remotely, and they don't they have trouble connecting. So we just want to make sure we can reach as many many people as we can
7: and how are you reaching those who need the support the most?
8: Um, We have a good uh, connection with a lot of community partners um, throughout the region. Uh, We do a lot of outreach. Um, We either do the outreach on our own, so we go to various locations and try and uh, connect with individuals, or we go to um, community agencies and we we do a form of outreach there. So we set up a table and we, we let people know exactly what we do. Uh, during the pandemic, of course, that was a little difficult with a lot of the lockdowns and, you know, a lot of people were kept indoors or they weren't necessarily out in public. Uh, but we continued to try as best we could. And uh, it, it, it usually works. We're able to, able to get around and find people and we have a good outreach team uh, that covers your York Region pretty well.
7: And are the workshops in person? Are they virtual? Which do clients prefer? Most of them,
8: well, most people, whether clients or community partners, prefer in-person. Of course, during the pandemic, that all changed and everything pretty much became Zoom. Um, Some people have identified that they prefer the online world a little better, Um, especially with regards to some clients. They prefer, you know, the safety of their own home as opposed to going somewhere uh, it's less expensive there's there's no real travel time involved um but people also like the in person stuff and we're slowly getting back to that. A few of our programs have uh just the last couple of weeks started in person um workshops and uh connecting with people in person face to face and it's I think a lot of people appreciate that.
7: Now, throughout the month of April, Taste for Life that fundraiser is back. What do we need to know to participate? How does it all work?
8: Um, well, Taste for Life uh, has taken on uh, a kind of a different approach um, over the over the past year, uh because of the pandemic. A um, Taste for Life was pretty much about one day in April, uh, going out to a restaurant. And the restaurants would donate and and people could individually donate, um, by, by taking out or, or dining in, um, that, that kind of changed that approach. We still work with, uh, restaurants, um, to help promote them, but we don't ask for, you know, the usual 25% sales. So a lot of it is we've expanded just, uh, you know, we're now kind of covering the entire month of April. We're doing a lot of things via social media, um, trying to get people involved by just talking and spreading awareness. Um, there's a lot of donation and sponsorship requests that are sent out. You know, so a lot of it's done virtually as opposed to in person. Uh, things are opening up a little bit now. So, you know, that's kind of changing. There is a little bit more in-person stuff. Um, but we're still taking on the same philosophy as you know, doing a lot of this our this work ourselves. Uh, whether we do it as staff or we get volunteers to help us out in creating donations, um, we promote our restaurant partners that have that have uh, helped us out in the past. But we um, we still you know we don't I don't feel that that it's a good time to be asking for them to do much work when in regards to this fundraiser there's i don't think restaurants can necessarily afford to donate any portion of their sales Um, i think they're they're struggling all on their own so uh taste for life has kind of taken on a dual meaning where we're um still raising donations for the, the much needed support that we need but we're also paying it forward by recognizing restaurants that have helped us in the past
7: So let's give some of those restaurants a bit of a shout-out right here. Who is participating this year?
8: So the restaurants we've worked with in the past and the restaurants we're still, uh, you know, kind of uh, partnered with um, are kind of spread out throughout uh, York Region. We have a few in Richmond Hill. Um, The host, Finding New Cuisine, they've been with us for a long time. Sushi in Richmond Hill, they actually reached out to us and supported us. The first year during the pandemic, when uh, things were shut down, and they raised money for us, which was great. Um, Places like Aqua Grill and the Joy's Restaurant in Aurora. Uh, There's the Old Village Freehouse in Newmarket. Um, And then we've uh, connected with some places in Georgina, the Boondocks Eatery, Symposium Cafe, the Corner House Bistro, uh, Lakes and Carms, and the Orchard Beach. They're all, um, they've they all helped us out, us, so we thought we'd, we'd continue the connection.
7: That's amazing. Plenty of food options for everyone's taste. Mm-hmm. So to help out, to donate, to volunteer, give us the how-tos.
8: To help out, to, to donate, there's a, there's a few different pages, but I think the best way to go about that is to get in touch with us uh, at, on our website at CARE which is C-A-Y-R-C-C dot org, or you can uh, email us directly at info at C-A-Y-R-C-C dot org.
7: Mark Koning, thank you so much for joining us on the feed. I'm sure we'll talk soon.
8: You're very welcome. Thank you for having me.
1: Jim Lang is next with lives saved by the rescue group No Dogs Left Behind.
9: One of the great organizations going on in North America right now, and yes, I'm a little biased because I'm a dog lover and dog owner, is something called No Dogs Left Behind. They have a great website, nodogsleftbehind.com. They're all over social media. And one of the geniuses behind it is Jeffrey Berry, who joins us on the feed today. Jeffrey, how are you? Uh, Thank you very much, Jim. It's a pleasure and honor to be on your show. Well, thank you. I mean, I, on the website, there's a photo of you holding one of the rescue dogs. And you're not, it's not just a dog to you. It feels like it's something special. What? Where did this love of dogs and protecting and rescuing dogs come from in your life?
10: Jim, I grew up, my family grew up. My mom would be bringing home dogs ever since I was a child. Um, my mom would stop the car in the middle of a highway, uh, with my father inside and run across the street and bring home dogs. And, you know, so I, I, I basically grew up with dogs all of my life. Um, we've, I, I've, I've never had a day without a dog
9: to be honest with you. And then now this organization that you're a big part of, no dogs left behind are rescuing hundreds of dogs around the world, especially in Asia. It's an incredible organization.
10: So, Jim, let me just tell you this. This is live, true, real-time right now as we are speaking. Our teams are on the front lines right now. We've just intercepted a dog trafficking truck with many dogs stolen. I would like everybody and anybody to go to the site, follow us on social media. You can see live content, what's happening real-time now. Hundreds of dogs have been saved by brave activists and no dogs left behind. Fighting on the front lines, we've intercepted the truck. The police have escorted the truck to one of the... The, uh one of the a location where we can treat the dogs, get them out of the slaughter cages, and um, and start getting them into getting them the care that they need. Uh, in in general, Jim, what no dogs left behind fights for is we fight for global animal welfare laws. We believe no country has the operate to, to uh, the right to operate without any animal welfare laws. And in Southeast Asia and East Asia, many countries don't and. What we fight for, and we fight on the front lines for, currently, is to end the dog meat trade. Now, yes, all the audience, I want you to know that there is a a brutal, barbaric dog meat trade where they beat and slaughter dogs for consumption, and they slaughter them and torture them with the notion that the more they beat the dogs, the more tender the meat is, or the more they beat the dogs and torture the dogs, In the summers, their bodies will be cooled down, and in the winters, their bodies will be warmed up. It's all myths, and we're fighting to end all this, and we're fighting to end the dog meat trade by forcing governments to to mandate animal welfare laws. And like I just said, we are real, true, real-time right now in the process of the truck interception. You can look on our social media feed and see dogs being pulled from the slaughter trucks, moms with the babies born on the slaughter trucks, some of them didn't survive. And the post you'll see right now is one of our team members giving, giving some love to the ones that you pull out of the cage that is near death and just letting them know that it's okay. that, it's, you know, that, 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 that we're sorry. Um, but none of them die in vain, Jim, none of them die in vain. We continue to fight and we will continue to fight until change happens. Until we end the meat trade and we force governments to instill animal welfare
9: laws that don't have any. Well, what's amazing to me, it's not just what you and your staff do as an organization to rescue the dogs, but I going I hear some of the background is uh, the the families and people across North America and Canada and the U.S. who step up to rescue these dogs, to take them in, to give them a loving home and give them the life they deserve.
10: That's true, Jim. Uh, you know what's most important right now, and what No Dogs Left Behind needs support with, is that the CDC has banned the importation in the United States of, of 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 dogs from 113 countries. We are providing support for not only No Dogs Left Behind dogs, but other rescues who have no place to take their dogs. We seek that we built a safe house in Toronto area, um, and we encourage volunteers to come volunteer of course donations are key without donations we can't save lives of course fostering dogs if you have the time and you have and you have the space um fostering dogs and of course adopting one of the survivors into homes is key we can't continue to save lives if we don't find them homes we can't continue to save lives if we don't have volunteers to help support us and of course the donations are key
9: the safe house is on Reeser Road in Scarborough. People are very familiar with that. And the dogs, as they come into North America, spend months being acclimatized and making sure their health is taken care of. And I would imagine for the vets and physicians and animal physicians you work with, Jeffrey, it's a quite a process till they're ready to go to a respective family.
10: Yes, that's true. We take great pride in vetting our dogs, making sure they're sterilized, have the proper vaccination, proper flea and pig treatment, um proper proper deworming medications and yes the dogs must stay here in quarantine at our location or at a foster for six months before they can travel abroad to the united states or even get adopted they can get adopted immediately here in canada but it is it is critical when the dogs come from any other country we're looking to help dogs from barcelona now the galgos we're heading into ukraine to help the dogs in Ukraine. We're heading into Turkey to help rescues in Turkey. So our, our, our mission is beyond borders. We don't believe rescue has borders. There's no borders in rescue. And we believe in assisting other rescues. No one rescue will make a difference. Collectively, we can make change. We fight the fight in our front lines, and we fight the good
9: fight. No Dogs left They're all over social media. You can find out how to adopt a dog, foster a dog, volunteer, but also sponsor a dog it's like you would sponsor a child in World Vision. You can sponsor these dogs. And I think that's a great initiative as well, Jeffrey.
10: Yeah, I agree with you, Jim. That's a great point. Yes, sponsoring a dog, uh, sponsoring their transport, sponsoring their, 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 their time while they're abroad in, these, in, these, in our sanctuaries. It's every little bit counts. Every dollar makes a difference, and that that is one hundred percent true, Jim, that sponsoring a dog is a huge initiative. And thank you for bringing that up.
9: and thank you for what you and your staff are doing. Saving dogs around the world. The dogs look like they need a snack or a walk. <laughs> no dogs left behind dot com. I do love the sound of dogs. Sounding like they're happy. Jeffrey. thank you so much for doing this. Greatly appreciate it.
10: Uh, my pleasure, Jim. Thank you very much for inviting me to the show. Again, we're located in Scarborough. More volunteers to come, the better. And please, please, please check us out on No Dogs Left Behind social media: Facebook, Instagram, uh, or Twitter. Thank you, Jim. Thank you.
1: Coming up: wireless data taxes and the CRA.
0: Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region and Romer, and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region.
1: Welcome back. Every once in a while, we come across a David and Goliath story that gets you right here, I'm pointing to my heart, and hits you right here, I'm now pointing to my pocket. Did you know that Canadians pay more for wireless rates than any other country in the world? There's a battle going on right now between a feisty wireless company, that's your David, and the CRA, that would be your Goliath. Joining us to explain is Samer Bishay, president and CEO of Iristel. Samer, it's great to have you on the feed. Welcome to the show.
11: Thanks for having me, and. I really appreciate being here.
1: So set the stage for us. What is this battle all about?
11: Yeah, so this battle started about uh, two and a half years ago. Um, it's actually an audit that the Canada Revenue Agency conducted two years two days after they had finished another audit on us, where we came completely clean uh, clean bill of health that was given to us by the previous auditors. And then literally two days later, another audit started from what they call the aggressive tax planning group within the CRA. And it's all about HST. So uh, just to kind of maybe put in perspective for some of the listeners, when you run a business and you are buying a goods or service that is used exclusively for your business, you can actually claim that HST back. So, let's say you go out and buy a, you know, a laptop, for example, and you you, you pay that HST on it. You can actually get it reimbursed back um, because it's a tool that you use for your business and to uh, to to conduct your day to day activity. Um, so this this basically, um, so on one hand, uh, typically it's a, it's a wash because you're selling goods and services to consumers in Canada and you are buying, um, you know, these goods and services from other suppliers in Canada. So typically it is a wash. The problem uh, is very apparent when you do not sell within the country when you are an exporter. And to give you a little idea of what we do, so Iristel is the largest independent telecom uh, in Canada, providing services to over 15 million Canadians. Uh, You've never heard of us, uh, but you've definitely used our services day in, day out, because if you've ever gotten on a Zoom call, if you've ever called an Uber driver, if you've ever done any of these things, these run exclusively on the Tel network in, in Canada. But the problem is because these clients or these customers are in the U.S. or outside of of Canada, we cannot charge the HST or the GST because it's an export. So on one end, we're, we're invoicing them without an HST or a GST. But then on the other end, we have to procure these services, whether it's a fiber build or a, a power that we have to put up, or buying, you know, uh, you know, hiring consultants, whatever it might be. We have to pay the HST, and then we go to the CRA submit a claim to get that money, our money that we paid to these suppliers to get the reimbursement back on that HST. How much That's money? basically at a very high level logistics.
1: And how much money are we talking about? What is the CRA demanding of IrisTel right now?
11: So we're talking about a few years because what they did is they went back a couple of years and, and we're looking at about $80 million that they are not Paying us. And this is not $80 million of their money. This is $80 million of our money that was paid that we have to beg for.
1: So why is there a battle? What is your view in terms of how the CRA is handling this and how does it affect your bottom line and also the, your customers? Do they have to bear some of the burden of this?
11: yeah, so the case is really bizarre from a tax litigation perspective, and over the last few years, I'm kind of learning a lot of uh, stuff that I normally wouldn't have known in the normal course or unless you're a lawyer in tax litigation. But um, uh, what's happening is the claim is so absurd and in the sense that if i if I paid that money to the to a supplier, what they are trying to convince the courts. Um, which there's no, it's just an allegation or a hunch, literally. It's a gut feel according to the transcript in one of the court documents. It's literally a gut feel that we are colluding with the supplier of the supplier of the supplier. So not even our immediate supplier. So what happened is we paid the money to a supplier and then that supplier so so think of like, you know, if you're building a home, right, and you go to a general contractor and they invoice you for I don't know, general services and then that general contractor has to you know, hand like hire an electrician as an example. So they have to hire that electrician and that electrician needs like a high voltage wiring, you know, uh, electrician that's specialized. So they hire another electrician. So imagine three layers down detached from you. That person does not remit the HST to the government. Okay. Because it's a flow of funds. All of a sudden now you as the house builder or the owner is responsible for that money, which is absurd. The, the, the Excise Tax Act does not allow for that. So, this kind of a position we're in is that's the allegation. They're saying, well, your supplier, supplier, supplier did not remit the money. You must be complicit. And I'm like, I don't even know who that supplier, supplier, supplier is, let alone two levels down. I only know that I paid my supplier and I know that they remitted the tax. So, it cannot be my issue, right? And that's the whole like, it, it's so absurd to the point that it's become a little, uh, you know, uh, unreasonable for the position that the CRA has taken and, and and how it impacted us from a telecom perspective, running critical infrastructure, providing, um, you know, critical services to whether it's uh, public safety, law enforcement, uh, connecting rural and remote Canadians uh, to, to uh, you know, to bridge that digital divide that our government's talking about all the time. It has hindered us because we were supp- supposed to deploy a 5G network that we didn't because we're running behind on. We were supposed to grow our team. As a matter of fact, I had to let go of half my team in order to be able to continue operating with cash flow uh, stifling uh, that they basically are not paying us on any of the HST that we're paying to anybody right now. And this has been ongoing for over two years. So I got. So a- you can imagine how bad of a position we're in.
1: Yeah, and i got to ask you, do you think the CRA understands this technology?
11: And that's, that's you hit it right on the head, Anne, is, is that's the crux of the problem, is out of all the auditors that worked on this file, they have not just ignored the previous audit that was concluded two days prior, which had some expertise in telecom. They, none of the new guys from the aggressive tax planning group has any idea how telecom operates. It's all based on a gut feel. Hmm. And I'm not joking when I say that. I I, I suggest anybody interested to look at, at some of the court documents and, and the transcripts that are out there.
1: So I read a quote from Professor Richard Ainsworth. He's a professor at Boston University and Harvard Law School. So here it is, quote, the Canadian government tax rules are forcing homegrown companies to look elsewhere. That could be a problem.
11: Yeah. Um, uh, professor Ainsworth came to uh, my rescue, I was, I was actually pretty desperate when I was searching for uh, you know, anybody to help me, somebody with expertise and, and HST and, and just VAT, the value-added tax in general. That's typically the, the term that's used outside of, of Canada. Um, because the what the CRA is alleging is these carousel schemes, this, that, the other. So I literally just went on the internet, started Googling who is the expert in this field. And Professor Ainsworth's name came up multiple times so I literally contacted uh, a professor, uh, Richard Ainsworth. Uh, he's a professor of law at Harvard and, and Boston. And, um, and, and he literally responded to me a week later saying, you know, Samura, I looked at your file. I'm going to try to help you. Um, so, so in essence, just to maybe uh, if I can explain a couple of things here, it, Canada is one of the only countries in the world that still has uh, that does not adopt uh, what they call a a, a zero zero rating uh, regime. And zero rating means if you're buying goods and services on a B2B level, so wholesale, uh, anything for your own uh, company, uh, you're not supposed to pay the HST and hope that the guy next in line is going to remit that money because you're kind of, it, you know, if every, if that person just even, like, have something happens to them, they go bankrupt, whatever, they're not going to be able to, to remit that money. So a lot of countries adopted the model that, look, in a B2B transaction, that does not make sense. Why keep passing the money and expose potential risk to taxpayers' money? And uh, he was shocked to see that Canada has not moved in that direction. And he had been advising. I mean, he's an advisor to the IRS. He has advised the CRA in the past. And this is something that should be dealt with because if I, if my margin is less than thirteen percent on on selling a product or good or service, and I have to pay thirteen percent in advance, I'm at a loss until I get that money back. And if the, and if the government now has a gut feel or a hunch where they don't give me that money back, then I'm just actually not didn't I didn't just not make money, I actually lost money, if you can imagine. Uh, So, yeah, he's very concerned and he's helping me out on this case. uh, But it it is an alarming scenario for Canada and for entrepreneurs in general.
1: Quick question, short answer. Why is it important to you that our listeners hear your side of this story?
11: It's important because we need to raise awareness. Um, You know, like... JFK couldn't have said it any better when he said, ask not what your country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country. And I feel like I need to do the spark for my country to raise that awareness.
1: Sam Rabishay, Iris Tell, President and CEO, thank you so much for what you had to say and wishing you strength and courage on your journey.
11: Thank you so much, and Thanks for having me.
1: If you missed any part of our show, please go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you for listening.